So today, like I said in my prayer, we are starting a new series and, uh, on the will of God. Now, there's two things you may notice today that are be different, and, and you are going to might wonder why, especially if you haven't been around, so I'm just going to get them out of the way now. If you've not been here recently and you see me limping today, and you're like, why is he limping? There was a horrible uh, Christmas decoration accident. We do not need to go into the details, but I am recovering, but if you see me limping, that's why. Also, you may notice today, if I start walking around as I get more mobile today, that one of my shoes will come flying off. That is not a normal thing. It's just my boots and my slippers are the only two things that fit with my, my ankle brace. And so we're wearing the slippers today, but they may come flying. So if they do, just please, uh, I apologize for anybody in the front rows, retrieve them and bring them back to me. Maybe it won't happen, but just in case. So the series on the will of God, it is going to be a three to four to, or five week series. I don't know. It depends on the will of God. <laughs> nope intended. And the whole focus is how to discern what God's will is for our lives. This is a desire that every single person sitting in this room has. We want to know what is coming our way. Even forget everyone in this room. Everyone across the planet has a desire to know this. We always have and we always will have a desire to know what is coming. What is the best route to take anytime we face a fork in the road or a decision? What does the future hold? And I was asking myself, why? Why? Why do we have this strong desire, no matter our age, our place in life, to know what is coming our way? And I, I think the reason is, is because we have a desire, it is in our nature to want to feel like we are in control of our lives. We want to feel like we're in control. We have the wheel. In fact, imagine driving down a, a straightaway, 85, 90, 100 miles an hour on a clear day, air rushing past you, the engine roaring in the speed, the music playing. Now, just imagine as you're doing this, closing your eyes. How long would you be able to keep them closed? Some of you are like, I already know because I've done this before. In fact, fast up. Has anybody ever done this? Come on. Fast up. Glenn, you have done this. Okay, this is good to know. We know who should probably be driving when you head out to Seattle, don't we? Yeah. Yeah, it, uh, I'll admit Maria and I did it once too. Actually, I don't know if Maria did it or if I just did it without telling her, but we were in Montana. There was nothing out there, you know. Uh, you know... I still wouldn't recommend it. You know, most of us in our right mind, we would open our eyes pretty quick because why? We're afraid we're going to hit something that we don't see. We're afraid that we're going to veer out of the road without realizing that we're going to go out of control. And I think we have that same kind of fear that drives us in our lives. That's why we want to know the future. We want to feel like it's in control. And this is why in the world you see people go to palm readers Fortune tellers, you see them go to prophets. They want to interpret their dreams. They, they go to psychics and, and, and mediums. They, they'll gaze at crystals. They'll read tea leaves. Some probably still practice the old-time practice of studying study the liver of a dead animal to discern the future. That's a thing. It is. They'll go and they'll try to read the stars. And the list goes on and on and on and on. Now, if you sit here today and, and your faith is in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior over here, hopefully you don't look to the stars, but you look to the one who made the stars. Amen, church. But even as Christians, we desire to know what's coming. Now, we don't call it the future. We call it God's will. We want to know God's will. 
I mean, what Christian has not prayed, God, show me your will for my life. And why do we pray this? Because if we understand God's will in our lives, then, we, then we're going to better flourish in our lives. And, and sometimes you'll hear this referred to as being in the center of God's will, where his blessing will be. Now, I think it's a good prayer to pray. I mean, part of being a Christian should have a desire to know God's will. The Apostle Paul, Romans 12, he encourages us to discern the will of God. I think there's around 50 reference, direct references to the will of God in the Bible, and I would say probably hundreds of implied references. So I think it's a healthy pursuit to want to know the will of God. But I do think far too many Christians misunderstand what it means to discern the will of God, or they're pursuing the will of God for the wrong reasons, with the wrong intentions. And because of this, they miss what God has for them. And they miss out the peace that comes with understanding the will of God, the peace that passes all understanding, the peace that guards your hearts through all situations as we read about in Philippians. So my real prayer is over these next three, four, five weeks, however long it may be, that we, every single one of us, where you've been a Christian six weeks, six months, six years, or 60 years, you will come to a fresh understanding of God's will in your life. In fact, I think this is a great prayer for us to pray. God, give me a fresh understanding of your will for me. Amen, church? Amen. Now, to accomplish this, we're going to spend the next three weeks starting out looking at three different aspects of God's will. Uh, and this first aspect of God's will, it's, it's like the foundation for everything else, right? It, it's, it's like it's when you put the, your faith in this first aspect of God's will, it, it's, it's what gives you the freedom and the confidence and the faith to pursue everything else in his will. Now, this first aspect is what theologians excuse me, would call the decreative will of God. The decretive will of God. And the decretive will of God basically goes like this. God's will is going to happen, period. This is the most important thing you can understand about God's will. That whatever God has decreed, it's going to happen. For example, in Genesis that we studied at the beginning of last year, when God said, let there be light, what happened? There was light. The flip got switched. He, he didn't cross his fingers, hoping. He didn't persuade the light. He didn't call an electrician. He spoke the words, and light came into being. It is the decreative will of God. The prophet Isaiah, speaking on behalf of God, in Isaiah chapter 45, and starting in verse 9, he says this, Remember the former things, those of long ago. I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me. I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times, what is still to come. I say my purpose will stand, and I will do all that I please. From the east I summon a bird of prey, from a far off land a man to fulfill my purpose. What I have said, that I will bring about. What I have planned, that I will do. Now why can the prophet Isaiah say this on behalf of God? Because God is sovereign. He is sovereign. The key word in a sovereign, if you know how to spell it, is reign. He reigns over 
everything. Not a few things. Not some things. God reigns over everything. Do you know that this morning? Does your life show that this morning? Hmm? When you watch the news? When you study politics? Does the way you respond to this world show that you really believe that he is sovereign over everything? Job 23 verse 13 says that he stands alone who can oppose him. He does whatever he pleases. Scripture is clear. We could spend the entire sermon time reading references in the Bible that make it clear that from our birth, from the womb, till our death, to the tomb, God is sovereign in his knowledge and control of this world. Now, this truth alone is not enough to bring us the peace that I mentioned briefly at the beginning. Because God could be sovereign and yet not involved in our lives. In fact, some of us feel like that. We don't feel like he's involved in our lives. But Scripture makes it clear that is not our God. And this is the second reason I can say that God's will is going to happen, because he is a God that is involved. Forget that saying that the devil's in the details. It is God who is in the details. And if you've been a Christian any length of time, I bet you've experienced this. Jesus said that even the hairs on your head are numbered. Some numbered less than others, speaking from experience. There is no aspect, no detail that is not under God's will. Everything that we see and experience is a direct action of God, or it's an event that he has allowed to come to pass. Uh, for example, has anyone ever played Monopoly? Huh? Anybody? Anybody who has a family members who don't talk to each other because of Monopoly, right? Okay. So let's just say, to, to another way to look at this, let's just say one night you're feeling spicy and you want to see you know, your family's sanctification process, you want to start a fight, so you guys sit down to play Monopoly, right? And you don't, you know, you don't play by the, 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 you know, the, the nice rules. You play real Monopoly, right? Cutthroat. And, um, and while you're playing, you, you land on boardwalk before anybody else. Yes. Think of God's will, God's will this way. God determined that you would land on boardwalk, either by causing the dice to land at a certain number that would get you to boardwalk, or by knowing how the dice would land and allowing it to happen. Proverbs 16.33 says, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. And yes, this even means when things go bad. And Because this is hard when, for some of us to process when, when we're talking about the will of God, when bad things happen. But when, when Scripture talks about God's sovereignty, he there's no exceptions that are ever given. God is either sovereign over everything, the good and the bad, or he's not sovereign over everything. There's no middle ground. And this is hard for some of us to swallow. And I don't have time today, it's probably its own sermon, to address every question on, the, on, on why evil exists. 
and all and every detailed question that we've experienced on the will of God. We, we have to save those, even though we've talked about them before for another time. But I will say one of the reasons I think that we struggle as Christians with suffering is because we walk around believing that God owes us something. That God owes us something. We would never say it, but you watch it because when bad things happen, we get angry. What's anger from? One of the reasons we have anger. Anger comes from a place of pride where we believe we know what has to happen, when it has to happen, why it has to happen, how it has to happen. And when it doesn't happen that way, we get angry. Why? Because we believe we know what should be happening. And so we get angry because subconsciously we feel like God owes us something. But Scripture gives a very different picture. It says that God owes you nothing but death. Romans 3 says that there is no one righteous. That we have fallen, all have fallen short of the glory of God. Every single one of us. It goes on later in Romans to say that the wages of sin is what, church? It's death. That's what God owes you, death. Now, we don't like to think about this because we like to pretend that sin is just mistakes and like, oh, I got it wrong. But sin is actually, a, it's treason against God. It's pretending that God is not king of the world and choosing to live your own way and in doing so, influencing others around you to do the same. We do not have a serious enough view of sin in our world. God owes us nothing. And I think another thing I often wonder is when it comes to suffering, we always focus on what has happened to us and why God allowed it. And I, 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 sometimes I wonder, like, why don't we ever think about what suffering would be like if God was not there? Like, what would our suffering have been if God didn't get involved in it? He doesn't have to, but he chooses to. I mean, take, for example, Joseph. You've been in church any time. You know his story well, right? He's a snot-nosed little brat. His brothers get tired of him being dad's favorite, so they get a little bit more extreme than brothers do today. They sell him to slave traders. He ends up in Egypt, works his way up. He manages the affairs of a high official. He gets thrown into jail on, on bogus charges, sits in there for years, then gets out through God's intervention, and then he serves in an even higher position, second in the land. And you know what happens? Famine hits right? And because of the position that he's in, how God intervened in his suffering, he's able to provide food for his family, the same family that threw him to slave traders, sold him off. And in doing so, in saving his family, he also preserves the line of Jesus Christ, who we celebrate today. And remember, one of my favorite verses in the Bible, in Genesis 50, when his brothers are begging him for forgiveness, he says this, he goes, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Why is it that we always focus, God, what did you do to me? Even though he, not everything that bad happens, he did it. He may allow it. It doesn't mean he did it. Right? And we say, why are you doing to me? Why are you having and saying without and, and we but we don't focus on the man, look, look how God helped me through this suffering. Look how God helped me through my sin. Look what he's doing. I was meeting with someone recently, um, and they uh, they use one of my favorite phrases that people over you know 70 use. He goes, Yeah, I'm a 
He goes, uh, I'm just, every day I'm getting closer to Jesus. <laughs> Always cracks me up when he says this. And, and he's going through some really, his, his body's failing. And I was complaining because I'm 44, almost 45, and I was telling him about my aches and pains, and he laughs, and he goes, you ain't seen nothing yet. <laughs> and, uh, but he, and, 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 and he, he was going through some serious stuff because bodies break down. We read about that in Scripture, and he's like, you know what? It's horrible. I hate it. I feel like my full-time job is doctor's appointment. But he said, you know, God's been so faithful to me. The peace that he's given me, the things that he's teaching me, the opportunity I have as someone who's suffering physically to show people what it means to trust in God. He goes, I'm thankful for that. Man, how our outlook in life would change if we stopped spending so much time looked on what is done to us as if we deserved better and we started focusing on how God is working in our situations for his glory. Are you with me, church? All suffering serves a purpose for the believer. 2 Corinthians 12, it's a great one. Paul talks about thorn in his side. We don't even know what it is, which is, I think, even better that we don't know what it is because it gives this broad understanding to how God works in our lives. He, he's a guy, he says, God, take this away from me. How many times have we prayed that to God about something in our lives? And he says, Matt Paul, you're going to keep it because my strength will show up better in your life. In other words, he says, Paul, if I took away this thorn in your side, if I took away this ailment, whatever it may be, you would actually be worse off. How often have we ever stopped and think the thing that we can't stand, the thing that gives us the most trouble, we'd actually be worse off if we if we got rid of it. That's why he's like, sometimes when people pray for me with healing, I'm like, sometimes I'm stuck. Not because I don't believe God can heal. He can heal whoever he wants, whatever he wants, how he wants. But like, I think sometimes we're presumptuous to believe that God just wants to heal us in our suffering. It serves a purpose sometimes. We, we often focus in our lives of the here and the now, and we get stuck in it, but God thinks of things in eternity. 2 Peter 3, 8 through 9, he says, Don't overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. But the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, slowness, slowness but he's patient towards you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everybody to come to repentance. Have we ever considered that his patience with suffering and with evil is actually an act of his grace? Once again, this can be hard to think about. But once again, he's playing the long game. If it's true that, that our time on earth is like this compared to eternity, if it's like this in terms of length compared to eternity, it goes on forever, then I think we would be glad once we got to eternity to see how he allowed a little suffering in this life that his grace and his mercy may save more for all of eternity. God's will is going to happen. He is sovereign. He is involved. But he's not reactionary. Uh, one of my favorite phrases somebody told me once is, nothing has ever occurred to God. He's never been thrown off. He has a plan. And we talked about this a bit already, but I really want to hammer it home. He has a plan. Whether it's a big plan, like Jesus, or even if it's a 
a small plan to help us grow closer to him, he has a plan. I mean, go to one of our favorite verses, Romans 8, 28. We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, for those who have been called according to his purpose. Now, God's not saying all things are good. We know all things are not good, but he will work together all things for good. And this can be hard in our Western mindset to deal with sometimes, right? Because we do not like events that bring us discomfort, do we? We love to be comfortable. We love to be at ease. But God's sovereign will is not about your comfort. It's not about my comfort. It is about his glory. And in fact, I would say that our comfort and his glory are in often a direct opposition to, to each other. I don't know many people who have come to my life in, 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 into my life. I, I can say this for me. Like, I'm not sure that I've ever drawn closer to God through my comfort. Now, I, I mean, I prefer comfort, don't get me wrong, but I've never drawn closer to him. And I can't, when you read the Bible, I don't see people doing great things for God through comfort. No, they get uncomfortable. That's what I read. And it's even in areas, small areas. Today, you all got uncomfortable. Right? You got out, you went out, it's cold out there, it's wet. You got out of your warm, cozy bed, right? You got away from Pastor Pillow and the great comforter, right? And you got dressed and you came here. Now, there are other people who didn't do that today. They're in bed. They're in their comfort. They're under their warm sheets and their, their blanket. and they're, they're in that and they're just they're a little cup of hot coffee and they're just sitting there. But because you're here, you have an opportunity to grow closer to God through the music and through prayer and through the delivery of his word. Growth comes in our discomfort. He gets gloried through our discomfort. I mean, read, let's take an even big picture here. Acts 2.23, when Peter's preaching about Jesus, he said, this man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to a cross. Notice, by God's deliberate plan. If God was willing to subject his one and only son to suffering, if Jesus was willing to be subjected to this suffering death on a cross, where could we ever get the idea that God wants to use comfort in our lives to reveal his glory to the world? And really, that is what the will of God in the end, and everything that we talk about is really about. It's about him revealing himself in the big scale to the world and in the small scale to you and to me. Think of Moses in Exodus chapter 9. Moses is speaking to Pharaoh on behalf of God, right? Talking to him about the Jews and, and, and letting them go, the Israelites. And he says this in Exodus 9, For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you, and you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose I've raised you up to show my power so that my name be proclaimed in all the earth. So he's basically saying to Pharaoh, Look, the only reason you are where you are it's because I've allowed it to be. And now I'm going to use you, so-called a living God, to show the entire world who the real true God is. God is concerned with his glory. Isaiah 42 says, I am the Lord, that is my name. 
And I will not share it with anyone else. Now, when some hear this for the first time, it may sound just a bit touch egotistical. Like if I walked into my house, I told my family, I am the father, right? That is my name. I will not share my glory with anyone else. You know, my wife would roll her eyes, first of all, but it would sound a little egotistical. But you have to remember in, in, in the context of the problem of this world and sin, Scripture tells us that Satan has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing God's glory. And so if it's true that sin separates us from God, it's so, <coughs> if it's true that unbelievers' minds are blinded, if it's true that Jesus came and he died and rose again, if it's true that salvation can only be found in him, he's the only solution for sin, then it makes sense that God would want his name to be, born, to be known. It's not egotistical for me to want my children to know that I am dad, for them to call me dad, because it's in their best interest to know who their father on earth is in heaven, just as it is our best interest to know who our father is. Our Father on earth, it's in our best interest to know who our Father in heaven is. And you see, all throughout Scripture, Genesis to Revelation, we see the glory of God being revealed again and again and again because that is His will. And it is going to happen. Now, there's a couple reasons that I have for reminding this today, which we've heard many times if you've been in the church but it's easy for us to forget. And the first reason is when I understand that God's will is going to happen, period, it frees me from anxiety. It frees me from uh, anxiety getting a hold of my life. Now, it doesn't mean it takes away my questions, but it takes away my anxiety. And one of the reasons I found as a pastor that people are afraid is because they're afraid of messing things up. I don't, we'll talk about this in a, in a couple of weeks. I don't want to take the wrong step and get out of God's will and just like ruin everything. I've had that fear in my own life. I have that fear as a pastor sometimes as we go on a great new initiative as a church. I'm like, ah. But the great thing that the decretive will of God teaches us, and hear me on this, you and I are not that important. We're not that powerful. I'm not saying we don't have consequences for our sin. We've all felt them, right? I'll experience that firsthand far too many times. But your sin is not strong enough to overcome what God has decreed in your life. Now, it might change how you get to where he wants you to go. Jonah, for example. Jonah, he says, go, go preach to Nineveh. Jonah's like, nope, I'm going the opposite way. God said, no, no, you're not. He turns them around. And I think it's safe to say Jonah suffered some consequences for saying no to God. But God said, no, I'm going to get you where you want to go. And this is a great reminder because far too many of us, we judge our usefulness and we compare ourselves to other people. And like, oh man, God can use that. Like that's a pastor, that's a worship leader. God can use them, can't use me. It is a great reminder. We are not that important. God can use whoever he wants to, whether they stand on the stage or they sit in the pew. In fact, I tell you this how many, I'm countless times, I think that God takes the most messed up people and puts them on the stage so that when something goes good, you're like, man, if God can use someone like that, then he can surely use me. It's about what he has decreed. And what he has decreed 
That's absent of, of your mistakes and your sin and your view of your self-confidence, which is, I mean, self-confidence is such a lie. It's about God confidence and what he says about you and about him. Not about you. That's a no, another sermon. It's not about you. It's about him. And if he decrees you're going to do something, oh, you're going to do it. And he's going to get you there. And I think, secondly, understanding that God's will is going to happen, it frees me from having to be able to explain everything. Like, have you ever realized you do not have to have all the answers to trust in God? Like, he literally tells us in the Bible he has not given the answers to everything. Deuteronomy 29, 29, I think it is, says the secret things belong to the Lord. And he goes, there's some things I'm not going to tell you. I'm just not going to tell you. And I think one of the most freeing phrases that a Christian can learn is, I do not know. I don't know. And I think sometimes the problem with, with Christians is we learn a little theology and we think we can start unscrewing the inscrutable, Right? Like I was watching, uh, someone sent me an end times video this week and this pastor lays out every detail of Revelation. Right? Every detail. All of it. He can explain every verse. I just preached this last year. I know that there's no way that you can explain every verse. None. In fact, after preaching, I'm pretty sure most of what I grew up with is not right. Right? But who cares? As, as, as Paul Washer once said, when Christ come again, comes again, you will know everything that you need to know about the second coming. You'll know it. Because he hasn't revealed it. And so we get caught up studying things that are not meant to be fully known. And don't get me wrong, we should pull the meaning from these things. But we don't have to have the answer for everything. Well, I mean, we, we don't have to say, sometimes we get in a place where we feel like we have to defend God at every turn, as if he needs defending. Now, we, 1 Peter 3.15 says that we should have an answer for anyone who asks us for the hope that we have. So don't, don't get me wrong, we should still study and learn, but we don't have to answer everything. We're not in control. God hasn't revealed everything. I can say I don't notice some things in this world. Now, does that mean my faith is not real? No, I told you this a, a bunch of times. We all are people of faith. Whether you believe in God or you believe in something else, you're a person of faith, whether you want to admit it or not. It's just where you put your faith. And I believe there's a whole lot of less questions when I put my faith in God than when I put my faith in anything else. And so I'm not saying, you know what? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know why God opens some doors and closes some others. And I'm actually pretty sure I don't even know the difference between a closed and open door. I don't know why some reject God. And like some choose to follow him. I don't know why God allows some evil and he doesn't allow others. I don't know how everything fits in his plan. I don't know what I'm supposed to do in five years. I don't know what I'm supposed to do next week. You know, I, I, sometimes people are like, what's God's vision for the church? I'm like, I don't know. And I'm okay not knowing because I'm not in control. I mean, it doesn't mean I don't seek his will through his word and, and other things. We'll talk about that in another week. But I'm not in control. I'm not designed to be in control. Being in a control is not a good thing. I have, how many marriages I have pastored for 20 years? One of the problems is one of them always having to be in control. 
or taking turns, destroys marriages. It destroys every area of our lives when we seek to be in control. I mean, just look through history. Look at modern times. Every dictator that's had power, the longer they have power, the more nuts they go, the more crazy they get. Why? We are not designed to be in control. I'm not in control. You are not in control. You have no idea. I have no idea what's coming. And that's okay. As a pastor once said, as believers, we cannot always know why, but we can always know why we trust God. Who knows why? And this is what makes all the difference. So I don't know what God's bringing in the next hour, the next week, in the next 10 years, but I know that he'll be a part of all of it. So all I can say is thy kingdom come and thy will be done. You know what this means? It means you're saying, God, you're in control. I'm not. And I trust you're going to do what you got to do. And that's enough for me. And so really, my entire goal, my entire homework assignment, my entire hope and prayer for this sermon is that this phrase will get sunk into your heart and your spirit. Thy will be done. When you're going through good things, thy will be done. When you're going through hard times, God, thy will be done. When you, everything's prosperous and rolling in, thy will be done. And when things are hard and you feel the weight of the world, thy will be done. When you know what's going on and what you need to do, thy will be done. And when you are completely and utterly lost, thy will be done. that the Holy Spirit will bring it to your life every hour and every day and every week and every month and every year until the day that God calls you home. Thy will be done.